0: In this episode, Ugo Bardi, Club of Rome member and editor of Limits and Beyond, discusses the role of models as tools to examine the future, including the world models of the limits to growth. The talk is moderated by Roberto Pasqualino from the University of Cambridge.
1: I think today it's going to be a very interesting talk with Hugo Bardi. As you can see, he's there. So, very nice to be here. Um, I guess you have to say
0: something, Roberto, and then and then we start. You tell me when you want me to start.
1: Okay, fantastic. So, uh, as usual, first thing I want to do is to uh, make people remember of what's happening next. So, we, today we're going to have Hugo Barney. It's going to be about the limits to growth and looking at models. But next week, very important, we are going to have the co-president of the Club of Roma, Fela Rampere, coming from a completely different background. Uh, She was a manager at the World Mm -hmm. Bank. When she was very young, she was an apartheid activist in South Africa. So she lived a huge career and uh, I'm very, very interested also in looking more about what she's going to tell us. Then there's going to be myself uh, speaking a bit about my model on finance and energy. And then we have at the end Jayati Ghosh, development economist, looking at the full feature of the Earth for All book, trying to give up, basically conclude, let's say the seminar series. This is the team. So you remember Yolga Randers on the left, he came for the first presentation and the first Monday. Now everything is online. So if people want to have a look, everything is there. Donella is also known to be one of the main people. Dennis Meadows, Uh, they were really the three that led these these limits to growth concepts. However, limits to growth also had a lot of criticisms. And it is fine to criticize limits to growth, because there were big fallacies there as well. Uh, Both If you believe in it, also we don't believe in it. So it's good to criticize and build up on it. So for example, Hugo is one of those who uh, tried to look at some of the fallacies and trying to make go beyond that, right? So some criticism included like the use of technology in the model, how you use data, and that was, I think, the presentation last week, we spoke a little about that. Uh, Too too complex or or other things like distributional issues, and again, Gaia spoke about that in the second seminar. There wasn't a green energy uh, in two weeks with my presentation. And then two the things that Ugo we'll looked at quite a lot were the, the lack of proper representation of the mineral sector and recycling sector. So that was one thing that Ugo ended up doing a lot of work on. And, you know, even things like there's a, the the world because food and then there is no fishery. So there is no the sea world, which is also, you know, quite obvious to say we should expand more of there. And then you know a number of things turn out to be different. Climate change—they didn't know about climate change in 1970. What they were calling that thing pollution. There were things like banning toxic chemicals around the world. They were nuclear—they were expected to grow exponentially. And after the big collapse in 1986 of Chernobyl, they start leveling off. And then you know finance and other So basically, let's say we are going to cover a bit of this part in the next uh, presentation as well. So uh looking first at the work of hugo so this one is one of the latest books that hugo uh, co-authored it's called the mtc with a colleague called Ilaria Perissi, that she's in cambridge as well at the moment so if you have to finish this sentence how do you finish that so give a fish to a man and you will feed him for one day teach him how to fish and there's a genius years is that, yeah, it's basically Confucius, isn't it? Uh, yeah. and, and what happened then? He will deplete the ocean, <laughs> of course, you know? <laughs> so I took that from Hugo. He gave me the presentation a few years ago. I love that. It was <laughs> so, so cute, I mean other thing he did, again, as I said, the criticism was the model was quite complex. Limits of growth made, made you crazy going up the, the clouds, you know? So he, he focused a lot on making this simpler. So the limits of growth revisited was a way to go in the mind size models, making things simpler, but still keeping the concept. So it was 2011. Then he kept building on that with Extracted. So that's a very famous book of the Club of Rome as well. And then one of the book that is basically is the lead author actually of one of these two main books we are presenting with today, so which is Limits and Beyond. It's a huge wealth of knowledge on the limits and uh, limits to growth uh, concept. Another thing to mention about Hugo and very simply, uh, he is uh, running this blog. So if you're interested in hearing about Hugo, you can find the key concept here, and uh, the blog is called Seneca Effect. And uh, the main let's say, concepts uh, is trying to demonstrate is why growth often goes slowly. And then when you collapse, it goes so quickly, all of a sudden you collapse the entire system. So if you're interested, probably Hugo will speak a little about this as well. A little,
0: a little, a little. I, let me show you something.
1: Okay, so <laughs> I <I'll>, uh, <I'll>... am... <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you, Hugo. Uh, so again, uh, there is not much to present about Hugo in the sense that his name is already you know echoes uh, in these rooms and uh, everybody knows about him already. Uh, so much research going on on this limits of world concepts, and uh, he, he had been as well president of the Club of Rome in the past. Uh, so this is Hugo. I think I spoke already too much, Hugo, so I think at this point I will simply leave you starting taking the lead on this presentation. So
0: thank you much for so much for being here with us. What I prepared today was such a nice introduction by uh, Roberto. I think uh, you realize that in order to discuss all the elements of this study, which uh, of course we have the 50th anniversary right now, and uh, we could take uh, a few days of discussions. And as you saw also, we wrote, uh, myself with other co-authors, uh, there are several meta books in the sense that there are books about a book, which I can show you to you. This is the book. Okay, I have it. And this is uh, an original copy of the book that was shown, that were published in uh, 1972. And just for your curiosity, this is the Italian version of the book, which I read when I was kind of young at that time. All right, so I tried to spend some time trying to explain the gears that make this study work, what is under the hood, underneath. I'm sorry that some of you are experts in system dynamics modeling, including Roberto, but, but I'll try to explain also to those of you who are not. So to explain what is this book about? How does it work? Why some models provide certain results as much as possible because it's a long, long story. So what happened in 1972 is that the book came out with this graph that you can see here. You see this graph? which is also in color on the front cover of the Italian version. Now, let me try to explain you what is this graph about. So there is a, a graph here. This is time. And in the case of the uh, limits to growth, we're discussing a t- time range of about 100 years. And there are some elements in this graph, which we did at different scales, but let's call it Q for for quantity. Quantity is something. And the first thing is an element that we call resources, natural resources,
2: which goes like this. These are the resources. This
0: is very general. I'll show you a few things. Let's say, discussing here about the whole global economic system. And it goes down, not linearly, but doing a curve like this. Then there is another quantity, which we call, goes like this. And we call it capital,
2: which may be industrial capital. Could be agricultural
0: capital. You see, in the original, there are two capital curves: one for agriculture, the other is renewable capital, and the other is no renewable capital. But it goes like this, and then there is a third curve, also like this, which is called pollution. This is the essential result of the limits to growth. It is the way it works. And the essential thing of this is that these curves are very general. You can see here, it is bell-shaped curve, which is also called the Hubbard curve. It's like this. But name, so, so, there are various names for it. There are other versions, like like I have it here. So you <laughs> uh, I I know I am a little bit involved in this kind of thing. I took it personally, as you can see. Now the question, the point I would like to make in a few minutes is why this? That's that's fundamental point. People, what happened? And um, Roberto mentioned the point that uh, they Book was criticized, was demonized, was rejected, was ignored—all kinds of things. But because people could not understand why, why this? And this is so typical when you have something not new, because this is the way the universe works. I will show you that. Um, but new in the sense, in the sense that people had not been thinking about that. So this is what is this? It cannot work. Why? And I'll show you how and why this thing can be made to work, but it takes a little while. First, um, can you think of something that we know that works like that? Some example of, of this thing that goes bump. You could have more of this, can you see? What does it remind to you? Roberto, can you, can you make an example?
1: No, society like Roman
0: Empire or different society. Oh, mm, well, yeah, you, you, you saved yourself, it's, a, it's because it's very general. <laughs> no, this is very typical, it's a trophic chain. Some of those of you who are biologists will recognize one, two, three. So you start, say, from killer whales, big fish, small fish, crustaceans, um, plankton, and, and then it's over. Um, but several stages It's the way a biological system, an ecosystem works through a trophic chain. And eventually it is physics, 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 physics. It is nothing on this planet can work Mm. if it does not satisfy the laws of physics. And when you start dealing with this kind of system, then you discover that there are a couple or lows which count, one is the dispersion of energy, the fact that everything moves according to thermodynamic potential, so it tries to go down the potential levels, like, like fish, fish eat, uh, sm- big fish eat smaller fish because they use the metabolic energy of the smaller fish to pro- to make the metabolic energy of the bigger fish work. And uh, it is physics, yes, but it is a new kind of physics. Let me be clear on this point. Physics is something that starts with Newton, and Newton starts with an apple. So we could say that physics started with an apple. The original idea of physics was an apple falling, modern physics, falling from a tree. It's, It's true, it's not a legend. Newton himself, discussed that in his diary. I said he was thinking of something and I saw an apple falling from a tree. And then he thought of his universal gravitation, gravitational law, which is very nice, but an apple doesn't have this behavior. That has been a very big problem that we have experienced over the past 200 years, because physicists would like to have an equation an equation for the falling of an apple and that's not so difficult i mean uh, not to say that newton were, was a big advance in science but but you know that for a falling apple you have an equation a simple equation tells you how a single apple falls and that's very general As if you want to be more to the point you say that An apple falls from a tree because the apple wants to utilize, disperse the gravitational potential it has because it is a certain height, goes down, bumps on the head of Newton, not really, but maybe, who knows. And then it creates a little bit of heat, which is dispersed in the universe, and that's the increase in entropy, and that's the way it works. All potentials have this behaviour. I can show you another energy potential. Well, now I'll show you why I use this kind of thing to show you, this is a mechanical potential. And this is loaded, it's, I'm taking a risk for you. It's uh, even though I'm not very dangerous for a human being, but I'll show you <laughs> the experiments we made with mouse traps and it was uh, painful at times. Uh, Ilaria can tell you about that. Uh, the problem is that, um, you dispersed mechanical energy, chemical energy, electric energy, gravitational energy, anything you like. But you don't see this as long as you have a single trap, because this is the way the universe is, uh, works. As long as you have one element of your system, very simple, then it will not show you this trophic chains. You have to have a network, and now that's the key of the whole of the whole story. When you have a potential energy which goes dispersed through a network, network, you know, to links and nodes, links and nodes, then you can have this kind of behavior. You can have a trophic chain. Yeah. Just to make you another example, let me show you something that has a non-linear behavior. You know, this is a hourglass, and you probably know the story of how we have a hourglass paradigm, developed by the Danish physicist Per Beck. And we have this model of the glass falling on forming that pile at the bottom of the hourglass, which has a nonlinear behavior, which looks under some respect like the one I showed, I showed to you on the whiteboard. Because the sand particles, the grains, they interact with with each other, so they form a network, so the behavior becomes complex. And that's what makes a sand glass more interesting than an apple, if you are a physicist who is interested in uh, complex systems and not in gravitational physics or space physics or whatever. Okay, so the task I have now is to show you how the presence of a network to dispersed energy can create this kind of effects. And for this, I took an, as an inspiration another book. I'm showing you a lot of books. I hope this one is in Italian again. It was published in 1957 by Walt Disney with the idea of explaining to people how nuclear energy works. In 1957, everybody wanted nuclear energy. It was, you know the story, energy too cheap to meter. Energy will be cheap. We go to the moon or we go to uh, conquer the galaxy and things like that. So that, that, was, that was an incredibly good job they 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 did. Because really it explains, I mean, in my mind, After some career in chemistry, I still think of atoms according to the illustrations of this book. You know that a uranium atom can undergo fission split in two when it is hit by a neutron and release nuclear energy. Same story, energy potential, entropy, you go and you go in a certain, goes in a certain direction. One atom of uranium doesn't do anything special. You can you continuously have uranium all over on this planet. And all the time, here and there, um, a uranium atom may split, undergo fission. The, the, the interesting part is when you have a chain reaction. One atom emits two neutrons, four neutrons, eight neutrons. 16, 32, 64, 128, and so on. And how did Disney explain this to people through the experiments of the mousetrap? Mousetraps loaded with um, table tennis balls. There is a nice uh, movie you can find on the web about this experiment. The point is that they took mousetraps like this Loaded them with balls like this. And I could let this thing go. Let me see if I if I can do this without killing myself. Release of potential energy. You see, it's not really a nuclear explosion, but it will not create an explosion unless you have many traps and we start with a nuclear explosion. Ilaria is my co-worker. She's in Cambridge now. And uh, we, together with Ilaria, we created a simulation of a nuclear weapon seen using 50 mouse traps, loaded, each one loaded with two balls. Anyway, here is the experiment. Ready? One, two. <laughs>
2: Done.
0: When, when Ilaria says done, is, is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> okay, that just to tell you that uh, um, we did something reasonably serious. We published the results of the experiment. This, this experiment was actually invented in 1947, but up to now, 70 years later almost, nobody had worried about making a measurements. Everybody said it's a fun way to show how a nuclear reaction works, but now we did it. We made, for the first time in the world, an actual measurements, and we used a mathematical model to um, analyze the results and then we published it in a peer review journal and it was not so so easy because the reviewers were, were you published uh, about mouse mousetraps in a, in a physics journal but then they understood okay so what we do with this The idea is simply what I was saying, it is a network of uranium atoms which interact with each other with the help of mousetraps. It moves because balls move from one trap to, to another. And then you have the same, something very similar, these are the curves for the nuclear explosion on the top left, and then the measurements and the fitting for a system dynamics model for the mousetrap experiment. It was a lot of fun. Also, we had some problems with our fingers because it was um, try that if you like, but setting up 50 mousetraps and not having one snap by mistake. It is very difficult, but we did it. The behavior is typical uh, that I was showing to you. It's very general. You have one curve for the resources which in this case are the loaded traps, and one curve for the capital, which, is the, which in this case is the flying balls. The system disperses energy from traps to mousetrap trap, and then eventually to the environment as low temperature heat. It is physics. And it is very general, very, very general. The same models work for a lot of systems. It is a new kind of physics which works for complex systems. It's something that we are discovering now. It's not yet completely accepted, but it was developed for the first time by the people who published the first study, The Limits to Growth, in 1972, because they had it in their hands. And, but it was known before. That's, I think the start of this idea was the Hubbard model. A model, you may have heard of it. It's the story of uh, peak oil, which by now is a little bit out of fashion, but it's still interesting. And uh, back in 1956, he had this intuition. He was not um, using models. He was just thinking by comparing with um, historical data. He found that, that, okay, in my opinion, the curve of production, of oil crude oil in the united states should follow this bell-shaped curve it was the first time that the bell-shaped curve entered the consciousness to so to say of scientists but it came from a geologist not from a physicist but that was the the idea and this test turned out to be reasonably good because production in the United States follows a similar path. That's again the bell-shaped curve, which is impressive here, how good it is. And this shows how core production in all European, but also Japan, there are many others. Here we have Japan, we can have France, and they follow this bell-shaped curve, which is the way the system goes the way the system follows its path toward the maximization of entropy. This is an economic system, but still it has to obey the laws of physics. And that's what you do. Then a financial system, because the extraction of coal or of oil is governed by financial factors, but the financial factors are governed by price factors and the prices depend on availability. And then the availability has a cost. And this is physics. So what you do here is look at the blue points, this red curve, it's England, UK to be more exact. Actually, most of this, uh, most of the wells are in the wells. the coal mines most are in England. You start going up because you have a positive feedback, just like a nuclear chain reaction. You start with a mine and the mine gave gives you the profits to start a second mine then you have the profit to start uh, for more more mines and more mines and more mines. So as long as it is inexpensive to extract coal and, and you have good profits, you keep growing in a curve, which is approximately exponential. Um, this is the same for oil, as you can see, and other examples like like in an epidemics also you have this little thing which has been very popular during the past two years but it is it follows the a bell-shaped curve this is called this is an epidemiological model which is exactly the same equations that work for the nuclear weapon or for the mouse trap experiment or for the coal extraction uh, story which shows that uh, just like Gravity acts on apples, people, planes, uh, cats, uh, mouse, uh, mice, and, and whatever. The same laws of physics, which we express in terms of a uh, um, system dynamics model, they work on socio-economical systems, also on whales. The Roberto was mentioning the story that we published this with the book that uh, roberto was showing uh, the empty sea and that's the way as you can see how how you empty the sea in this case of so whales these kind of whales were called the right whales because they were easy to catch so you had this curve and but as long as you catch whales you run out gradually oh, whales you have to go far far more far farther away to get the whales you have to to search for whales for a longer time, the catching whales becomes more expensive. And as it becomes more expensive, you catch less, a smaller number of whales. And so you go through this curve, which is another case of the bell-shaped curve. Eventually here, you may, you may be interested to know that at the end of this cycle of fishing or whale hunting because whales are not fish, but anyway, makes little difference. Um, We started with several hundred thousand whales of this particular species at the beginning. And at the end, according to the estimates by people experts in, in this field, there were some 50 or 60 females of this species left in the oceans from a few hundred thousand to 60, which is remarkable in terms of running out or something like that. So it is very typical, very very typical. You can enjoy your, have your time, and it's a fantastic field. When you start understanding how these systems um, disperse their energy, you can play games of all kinds, like we did with our traps. But just to tell you something about the Seneca effect, and we call it the Seneca effect because it's a sentence that was said by Seneca, the Roman philosopher Seneca, back in the first century, and he is he said this sentence increases. Aros- luggage growth, but the way to ruin is is rapid, and which was easy to to express. (laughs) He didn't have mathematical models, Seneca, but it was logic, it made a lot of sense. And then if if you look at carefully at at the curves that I was showing to you at the beginning, you see that they have the Seneca shape. So they go down faster than they go up. And why does it happen? As you can see, also, this is the 2004 edition. We call this House of Cards effect. House a card of Cardiff effect, as you know, it takes a lot of time to build a house of cards. Then you just touch it and then it goes down. And the, for instance, here it could be the number of cards in the castle could go like this, go up to here, and then goes down. And this is a dynamic effect. We have mothers that can reproduce this effect. Essentially, for your knowledge, the system is a little bit more complex than the very simple one when you have a predator and the prey, when you have uh, whalers and whales. Very simple. Whales, whalers, you have two entities chasing each other, and then you have the normal, the regular, the bell-shaped, symmetric bell-shaped curve. When you have a third element, which may be pollution, as I was showing you at the beginning. If you have pollution, then you have a third factor, which damages further the um, attempt to keep the capital stock at a certain level. So the system may converge in destroying the system, which is something that you have surely experienced in your life. The fact that some when, when things start going bad, they go bad fast. It's, uh, we have several examples like um, this is not feta but metas you know meta is uh, is the new name of facebook and you see these people lost i don't know how many billion dollars in a, in a few weeks it's, it's remarkable the la- latest example of a seneca collapse you see the ftx disaster in a few days these people disappeared seneca collapse that disappears that's very typical and again fishing fishing it's a uh, Fishing had been relatively constant for several decades, even before the war, growing slowly. Then somebody started saying, we can improve. And then they went into overexploitation. And then the curve raised up, went up nicely. People said, oh, I was so happy. We are catching so much uh, sturgeon and producing so much caviar and then bang. And then it went down. Another example of Seneca effect, which was the result of several factors uh, collaborating with the, with each other depletion and pollution together bad government management which is bureaucracy is a typical um, negative factor in this kind of systems and um, many examples and population of ukraine just because ukraine is uh, fashionable right now uh, ukraine went up until the collapse of the soviet union in 1991 and then down you go it's typical all the countries of the former soviet union went through this kind of curves which are the results of a serious factor because the population have been growing up to a certain level then um, serious so lack of good food bad health care system stress uh, lack of work um, a lot of too much vodka, and this kind of things, and then you go down faster than you grow. This is another typical example of the Seneca effect. A few more slides. Something about the Seneca rebound, because it depends on the scale you consider. Now, even the limits to growth at a scale of uh, uh, 100 years, in 100 years, the, the global system, if things are to go as it was expected, the system will not recover. Once we run out of oil, oil will reform, as you know, if you know about, a little about geology. But in a few million years, we'll have oil again, probably. But over the time scale, as I said, of a few hundred years, no. But rebounds do occur. Also, they are a typical feature of biological systems. They are a typical features uh, feature of this kind of complex systems. Just as an example. You take a look, imagine Europe at the end of the 14th century after the Crusades, the Great Famine and the Black Death. It was a disaster. Europe was a depopulated continent, uh, a poorly managed, poorly government, running out of resources. Uh, people were depressed and uh, pessimistic, a little bit like now, I think. Then you see Europe rebounded and then it was the age of explorations. Chris, you recognize probably the, the monument which is in Lisbon to the explorers. I they, they did a lot of damage, these people I'm not saying that they were good people, not at all, but that's another story. But Europe had at least two collapses and two rebounds during the past um, the past millennium, which means that we can rebound. And of an example, the Seneca rebound, it's fantastic. This is the most amazing graph of the 21st century. You remember what I was telling you about Hubbard, the Hubbard curve, and the Hubbard curve was okay, was fine. He made a good prediction of when the peak was and the decline up to about 2005 um, was okay then. Something happened, bang, it goes up again. Fantastic, unbelievable, nobody, before 2008, you remember the big financial crisis of 2008. Before 2008, everybody was saying, "Well, we, the production of oil in the United States will keep going down slowly as it should do because of a depletion coupled with financial factors, and it will keep going. There is nothing to do." With it all geologists in the world were agreed on that. That you would ask them, "How about this new oil?" fracking and shale oil and tight oil will tell you, no, it's not not possible, too expensive. And they were right in a sense, but costs are not the only element of this. It's a human element. If humans scared of the great crisis of 2008, humans humans who have some power, humans who can influence the financial world, they say, okay, now, we, are, we have a problem with oil. We don't care about cost. We need oil essentially for military purposes because this is one of the main points of oil is that it's main factor of wars. It causes wars. You It make, makes it possible to people to fight wars. And you know this. And so they said, we throw a lot of money into extracting oil out of shales shells, special geological thing. Find some way of doing it. We don't care about the cost. Extract it. And it can be done, you see. It, it is not a good thing, but it shows you what can be done when you really want to do something. Models are based on thermodynamics. The human mind sometimes, occasionally, can go against thermodynamics for a while. We need to think, if you want to change the system, want to avoid the Seneca collapse, if we want to move into something which is better future, we don't have to push the same thing all, all the time. This is, something that uh, Donella Meadows, there's not a name here, but Donella Meadows was one of the authors of the first edition of the Limits to Growth. And she was a bright mind, a very brilliant mind who could see beyond the models, because this is the, the trick of modeling. It is you can make all the models you want, but you have to see beyond. The model is something that could happen, but now it will or will not depends. Or many things that are not in the model and cannot stay in the model. And so you have to think in terms of leverage points. A little change can change, make enormous changes in the system. Just takes very little. There are these leverage points that if you know how to pull the levers, then, You can do things you cannot even imagine, like, indeed, like this. That was completely beyond imagination just 10 years ago. 10 years ago, people said, ah, that's impossible. And it was possible, just like what's happening now, another big, enormous, fantastic, unbelievable change. Because people say, well, okay, the world can only live with oil. Without oil, there cannot be civilization. One second. Wait a moment, wait a moment, why? Because it is too expensive. Renewable energy is too expensive. We can never use renewable, we will never be able to replace oil. Yes, it was true in 2010. You see, the cost of solar photovoltaic energy was um, about double that of uh, natural gas. Shift forward 10 years, things are enormously changed. Enormous Now, the cost of uh, the new renewables, wind and solar panels, it's less expensive, but that much better than this, because you know that the, with the current crisis, the cost of natural gas has gone up for a factor of 10. So you have a new source of energy, which costs to you one-tenth of a previous sources. It's a revolution. It is a leverage, a leverage point that changes everything, and it is changing. You see this? Nuclear went through a Typical curve, one of those curves that systems do, but the nuclear didn't go down because uh, because the send nuclear have a long um, survival times. Once you build a nuclear plant, it can survive for about 40, 50, 60 years. Then it is a big problem, but let's not discuss that right now. 2020, 21, they alone surpassed nuclear. And you see how fast they're growing. This is another. Sanyaka rebound. It is possible. If you look beyond the models, you have to expect this kind of things. And it is the best thing that could have happened to us during the past uh, decades. Change the world It's changing everything. And we have a chance to survive, which is already something good, don't you think so? I hope you think so because some revolutions takes really a short time. You see here, 1900, 1913, 13 years before were all horse carts. 13 years later were all petroleum cars. And so things do change. So to conclude, we have some rules that, that you may consider, but I think if you follow the, the seminar, you understand what I mean always remember Seneca. The way to ruin is rapid. The fact that something is going well should make you think about the possibility that it is going too well. And that means going beyond the model. You go through the model and you see what is beyond. And you can, you can within limits, you can fight the Seneca, Seneca cliff. You can, but uh, you have to think uh, before it happens. You can read more of this in these this blogs so of mine. And I would like to thank the Club of Rome. And I forgot to write a name, the name of Ilaria Perissi, who helped me a lot in this kind of studies we've been doing. And last thing that I wanted to show you, you can read more about this object on this book, of which as Roberto said, I'm an editor together with Carlos Alvarez Pereira. And this is a long, multi author discussion of what was the 1972 study what was its relevance for that time for us why it was not understood how we can understand it now and um, okay that's if you if you want to know more there's probably more than you want to know you <laughs> really want to know this book. So thank you very much and uh, and also you can if you like I can write me I send you. I send you a Seneca kind of <laughs> shirt. Thank
1: you very much, Hugo. Uh, is there any question from the room?
2: Uh, my name is John Messinger. I'm a physics PhD student here at Cambridge. I guess my sort of like initial reaction is, is that like I don't always, or I usually don't like the invocation of physics or science, particularly like physical laws in the domain of social science, because there's, I think, often a confusion of empirical analysis and actual underlying physical laws. So you show this sort of like Gaussian, you know, like bell-shaped curve and as if it's sort of like a physical inherent law in say, that that manifests in say, coal production in the UK or, or peak oil I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that's actually not the dynamics at play. It's instead that there's a peak in demand because we find a better energy source like natural gas or, or nuclear or solar and wind. And so I guess my question for you is sort of why sort of using, and I think it's misplaced, uh, sort of like these physical laws as a crutch, these arguments when instead I think that you get the dynamics actually completely wrong
1: okay
0: i'm not sure what is your question is your is your, yours a question or a statement sure, sure. i i understand your point i was kidding uh, you don't believe it that's it's perfectly fine the, the reason i find these models fascinating is they, because they work very simple and if they didn't work of course uh, i wouldn't lose my time into so much work into making these kind of models then, if you think there are other more important factors, I agree with you, there are other factors that don't stay in the model. Just like I said when I showed you the, the, <laughs> the peak oil, the Hubbard, can you see, this is this curve you can see here. It's, yeah. You go, you work really like like this. <laughs> you see, this is not in the physics of the system. So, this is beyond the physics. You have to be careful. And I think you're making an interesting point. You don't have to trust physics too much because mm, there is human, human factors. And uh, in the book that uh, this book, we discussed this a little bit. It is a very difficult point because, um, you know, you can, uh, once you start thinking in terms of, in terms of human psychology, then anything can happen. People may decide we don't want oil anymore. So they have the opposite. You could have had um, completely different way to go depending on people's decisions, but let me repeat, in general, very often, the model works. And when it doesn't work, there are, you understand that there are very special, very specific, very particular, um, understandable reasons why it, didn't, it does not work. It tells you at least a baseline on which you can understand what's going on.
2: Sometimes, like you know, human ingenuity or something can go beyond physics, but that's obviously not what's going on, right? Is, for example, for oil oh. fracking
0: breaks that model, but it's not physics. I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm yeah. not sure well, I can follow you, but as you said, it's this, it's, it's, it the model so is falsified by fracking, but, it's, but the model remains very valid. If people had not decided to spend a lot of money and lose a lot of money, because fracking has not provide, provided revenues for anyone. Fracking is a typical military, decision by the united states because they need oil to keep the the empire because it's the way you call it uh, the empire calling going and then you don't care about money the system what you can you can call this kind of approach and it's a, a term that i didn't use but you can use it econophysics or biophysical economics as long as you the physics of the system drives the economics of the system. You have a predictable behavior, but when you start saying, well, let's go to war, then uh, wars are not predictable by the model, I <laughs> see, because um, yeah. wars are a failure of, 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 of the model of the network. The model works essentially as I was saying, it's because there is a network, a tight network. Once you decide to, to start a war, you break the network in two and then everything changes, but it's another story.
1: Thank you. Okay. Can I just add something on this talk, this point exactly? Just to give a bit of background as well, because the story of limits road changed over fifty years as well. So just if you see Earth for all is a different boat. <laughs> right. So the limits road was the world collapsing. Earth for all is not collapsing. So the world doesn't collapse. So the, the these things of any minerals for people like who Jorgen Randers is not happening in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And that's the reason why, because the the expectation is that somehow the economy will end up adapting itself, extracting more minerals, making things to grow. So you can agree or not with that assumption. Again, uh, that's a matter of having a conversation. However, the the big points that came from Limits to Growth, that was, let's say, the scary bits that these people used to be scared about in 1970, was not really eating the mineral. Issue hitting something else. They were all aware that they were unprecise, unpredictable. You can really say that. So they were a bit also unsure of themselves, but they were very scared about the exponential growth. I mean, that, that's very scary. It, it sounds incredible, but if you take this piece of paper and they pull it 42 times on itself, it goes 440,000 kilometers. It's scary. I mean, if you think about that, that's why they were scared about poli- the population thing. They were scared about the industrial capital growth, it was going exponentially. So, at some point, they will overshoot the, the limits of the planet, no matter whatever limits we remove. So they that was their concern at the time, at the end of the day. Uh, again, the only way to avoid that, if we grow fast, but l- less fast than now we we build up the bridge below that. So we managed to find the resources below, we managed to remove pollution. We managed to stop having the population which will impact some environmental issues so in practice exponential growth problem is you know you can say all these models were wrong but that concept still remain true and if we grow so fast and we overshoot the limit of the planet we end up in troubles pretty much and that's when you know, the US, the, that curve of the U.S. in 1970 was a big trouble for the U.S. They, they stopped having the monetary funds. You know, they, they used to have the gold standard at the time. They changed that because they couldn't employ people anymore because they had oil. And so they start like moving into this sort of rain uh, exchange market, things like that. They managed at some point, they managed to go so deep in the ground to extract more resources, which is fine. We have a lot of resources around the world. But the big problem, again, is that you end up destroying the climate. The climate issue. So, the planetary boundaries concept again is still true. You cannot say that very precisely, but still, we end up in this trouble because you you cannot measure it and you cannot manage it. And we have to find any way away. I don't know if this somehow covers a little bit of your point as well. Thank you. Uh, And would you feel like, please? Just a real quick one. So, um, I'm Sebastian, I'm studying sustainable finance. And just sort of observation on the fracking points, so I think a very, very reasonable point. To me, it's the measure, the measurement um, in what is being measured is obviously an issue with those graphs, which is why they don't make any, they, they obviously look extremely silly. He calls a very silly concept on the basis that it's it's based on assumptions about technology, um, specifically interest rates. Uh, it's just a couple of things that I wanted to add. Um, it's not the case that there wasn't substantial revenue opportunity in fracking, the profitability was minimal. The last 10 years um and it was obviously based not on u.s government policy specifically um but low very low interest rates uh, which allow companies like chesapeake and the big fracking operations uh, xlm which was bought by exxon to continue to operate on negative margins it wasn't necessarily a u.s government um well a planning position it was purely a really a financial technology yeah of course uh, okay, uh, so thank you very much, guys. I will start by asking question from the chat. Hugo, does to Adam Files is asking what is the difference between limits to growth and Earth for all model? So one collapse, one does not collapse? What's it's the right not, one? What it means?
0: is not that the, the Earth for all doesn't say collapse. It uh, it it is. Uh doesn't mean that it will not collapse uh, Earth for all is based on some assumptions which uh, says if we do a certain number of things we follow a certain number of paths but if you if you look at the book if you read the book you see that some of these paths lead to collapse no no problem about that it is always the same thing I say I was convinced up to up to a few years ago I was convinced that there was, we would see a collapse soon and we still, are on track for that but the new um, developments in renewable energy and now you can we can hope that uh, the collapse if not avoided can at least be mitigated so you have to change all the time a model is not a predicting tool it's not there to predict it's not a crystal ball that you look into and you predict the future the model explains to you the the future. The model is is there to tell you, like, like this, when I say, what's happening here? Why didn't you predict this bump up. Because predictions are not the business of the model. You cannot do that. The future is, is always complicated. They're always surprising. You never know what people. I mean, think of your own cat. It, 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 the, the, the little beast will surprise you. Often, right? So you cannot predict the behavior of your cat to say nothing about your wife or your husband. <laughs> so think about this. And and But what it tells you, because otherwise you don't understand anything here. If you don't have a model. You cannot understand why you have this behavior. What's happening? Just like before there was this big change. I was speaking with economists, and they told, they say, "How do you explain this peak?" I said, it's "Because the United States government ordered to turn off the taps." It makes no sense. There's no such possibility for the United States government. They could not do it if they had wanted to, and they for sure they didn't want to do this. You can understand this because you know the dynamics of the system, because you have a biophysical view of the system. Then if you have this biophysical system, you, you can see at this bump and, and say, okay, that's, that means that something has changed in the inside the system. And then the parameters are changed and then something different happens. You go to to look at the Russian case. The Russian case is very similar. It goes like this. Now, Russia. Why that? Why did you have to pick? Because this was the Soviet Union. This was Russia. Soviet Union had an economic system which was completely different. They had expenses which uh, did not, occur for Russia or the Russian Federation more exactly. And so that's as uh, soon as uh, when, when, the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they went down a nice Seneca cliff and then uh, changing the parameter of the system, use less expensive, less military expensive, at least up to now, I <laughs> don't say anything about what's happening now, but then they could restart a Seneca rebound. And you, this, the beauty of this thing is that it gives you an interpretative, an interpretation. You can understand why the system does certain things. Now, what is going to happen to Russian production in the, in the near future? Mm, I don't know. I, I, I would not launch myself in trying to tell you where they're going to collapse at the beginning of the war. People are now with a sanction that will collapse in one, in one week. this is not happening, because the system is complex. But at least you have a chance.
1: Uh, Thank you, Hugo. Uh, So there's another question about the renewable energy transition. Uh, And the question is how many decades are left to make the transition to happen? Assuming climate change will not kill us by 2070, for example, but many countries are picking 2070 as a target. And also, if I can add my question on top of this, uh, just because I know you are familiar with the field, so uh, for example, in the context of the energy transition, you know we are expecting to have green growth, things like that. But this will end up uh, putting a lot of weight on the mineral sector. So you know, everything. If you want to electrify the entire world, we need to take a lot of minerals to. <laughs> things that will allow us to, to, to make the electrification possible. So what's
0: yeah. your view on that as well? Yes, right. I wrote an entire book on this subject. So I, I think I have some idea. But, you know, whenever you make predictions, you're sure to be to be wrong. That's one of the things that we can say with some certainty. But the point is, so if you, if you ask me, just let me let make you an example how technology and mineral resources connect with each other. Everybody's talking about hydrogen and fuel cells, okay? Now, fuel cells, the current technology, uses expensive minerals and rare minerals to function. You need platinum for fuel cells. Platinum, typically also iridium, but mainly platinum. So you make a simple calculation. You want to replace the current hydrocarbon-based energy system with hydrogen, and fuel cells, you cannot do it because you just don't have enough platinum. No way, we are orders of magnitude away from that. And that has to be taken into account. You have to, by all means, because fuel cells are a known technology. It has been working in a certain way for 50 years. We, you use this technology for fuel cells. There are other technologies we should not use, um, I, um, noble, noble metals, but they are not standard. Uh, when you deal with silicon, Photovoltaic panels you deal with silicon. Silicon is the main element, the main metal in the Earth's crust. So you don't have the same problem. You don't cannot say why we run out of silicon because solar panels are made mainly by silicon with some traces of phosphorus and indium and traces. So you, the only problem we have with solar panels now is is um, some silver they use of, um, as a back, back back plate, but you can you can make it's not fundamental. It's like you can make panels, PV cells without silver. So that's a completely different story. You can make um, a certain system is not resource limited. Other systems are. Now you go to nuclear energy, you are uranium limited because there is just so much uranium. So you have to take that into account. You go to uh, lithium batteries, that's a very complicated story. There is a limit, but right now we we cannot see it exactly. It's somewhere there is a limit for sure, but we are not there yet. We can keep making batteries for quite a long time. And but the, and then we can switch. The, the, the beauty of batteries, um, I was trained as a chemist, batteries are a fantastic technology. You can enjoy yourself making different kinds in many ways. So it has to be taken into account, uh, but you have to be careful in what you um, do because some people say that we cannot do anything because there's a, a mineral limitation. No, we can do a lot of things if we use minerals which are abundant, and of course, we recycle them. And if we do that, we can keep the technology, the industrial technology going, some caution, because everything changed. Everybody, when I say this, everybody tells me, oh, you want to keep the world just the way it is and no changes. No, if you change the energy technology, the system will completely change, but then it is difficult to, predict. it, And as I said at the beginning, prediction is very difficult, especially when it has to do with the future.
1: Uh, thank you very much, Hugo. Uh, also, just as a comment, Uh, I I just wanted to say that also Professor David Lane is participating from the chat. So thank you, Professor Lane. And also one thing that Professor Lane says is that the model in practice is is not falsified in the moment in which the data don't agree with that model. The, The only reality is that by is this by changing the parameter that was run was used to run the model in the 1970s that basically classifies the scenario built with that model. But in practice the truth of the model still lies, even though we still didn't reach that sort of crazy limits of the world as we we expect. It's very simple to understand that is finishing the, the resource of the planet is like finishing a glass of beer. You know? The moment you don't have it anymore, you doesn't drink anymore, and that's pretty much the concept. It's like having a parameter telling you how much beer you can drink. So pretty much, I think that's the the idea. There is a question from Frederick Guarino, and Hugo is linked back to the population. And when you said about the population of Ukraine, there was somebody asking for the population of Japan, which is also another case of the growing population. What's your take on it?
0: About Japan, it is. I discussed that in my book, The Seneca Effect, and it is a very interesting case because they could maintain a stable population, about 20 million, if I remember correctly, for the whole period of the Tokugawa shogunate, which um, it's an interesting case, a modern case of, of stability. It's uh, something that I I discussed in the book, whether we can learn something from Japan, from the Tokugawa Japan. And we know a lot because it's close to us, the Tokugawa um, government uh, collapsed in the early 19th century. So it's, it's close to us, so we can learn. And it was a very tight world, it was, not rich, people were poor, by all means, very poor. There was a birth control system, which is, uh, that's a little bit difficult to understand exactly how it was obtained. You know that there was this, you can read about the story of the mabiki, mabiki means, uh, means um, hiki means uh, take away, and ma means a plant or something, means it is understood as infanticide. But uh, it's not, not to be exaggerated, infanticides happens in all societies in the world. There were no reason to think that the Japanese were more infant, more, more killing babies more than anybody else. It, it existed. But in reality, there was plenty of, of contraceptive ways to avoid overpopulation. In any case, occasionally you had famines and some people died. But it was stable, actually, was never those giant famines that killed millions of people in other countries of the world. And so it was, it, I, think, I think it was a, an interesting place to live. Japan uh, the, during the Shogun time. It was uh, art, literature, mathematics, uh, and uh, architecture and the religion. It was a very vital uh, period. So I think it is possible to maintain stability without losing civilization because the mm-hmm. Japan, Japanese civilization was very advanced even before it was the, 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 perhaps more advanced then than than you could argue that and if we we need to keep anyway we need energy the Japanese were still linked to agriculture and they had this big advantage that Japan is a very um, rainy place so they 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 didn't have the, the big problem of, of drought that, that we have. And I think the beauty of uh, renewable technologies like photovoltaics is that they naturally tend to stabilize because there is so much land that you can use. So as you cover, and then eventually you have to stop. You cannot you cannot panel the whole planet. It makes no sense, so you have to stop. And so I do think that if we move to renewables, then we are naturally moving to a stable, World without the need of doing strange things or killing people or whatever. And this is one conclusion. If you read the Earth for All, you will see that uh, they they describe something similar. That they, don't, they don't discuss Japan. Uh,
1: thank you, Hugo. Uh, there's another question from Joya. She's asking about an example of a stable system you can learn from, maybe we can aim for. There are not been
0: so many in human history. It's, uh, that's uh, that's uh, an interesting question, because we have Japan, as I was mentioning, may, we may have the ancient civilization of the Middle East, like the Sumerian, these people. But that's so remote in time, that it it's difficult to, to say whether we can really learn something from such ancient civilization. Then very few societies have been stable. For instance, as I was showing to you, Europe didn't manage to have a stable system. They went up and down, up and down, and then then we don't know, we're still growing a lot, and we don't know if we will be able to maintain the current level of population. And uh, let's say that it is typical of these models now. They tell you that all systems have a tendency to stabilise as long as there is a renewable supply of energy. The system moves because it disperses energy. If it uses up all the energy, then it dies. But if you have a constant supply of energy, like the sun, for instance, then the system will tend to adapt, takes time. Also for Japan, the Tokugawa Stability was the result of a of a period of big wars, and then eventually they 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 stopped because it's useless <laughs> they had to stop. But uh, they probably before the wars went in overshoot, overused land. Then there was not sufficient energy or food. That was the main energy at the time for everybody. So they had to go to war, and then eventually they they found stability. And I think we'll do the same, although, clearly, we are not there yet.
1: Uh, okay, uh, so thank you very much. How realistic do you think it will be a society that shifts from growth to a sustainable way of living via the growth?
0: Now, this is an interesting question, because you, I can tell you that that back in the 70s, where when these study this, the original study was being discussed There was this kind of debate degrowth growth or zero growth what does it mean that it's um, a very um, nuanced question because what is zero growth I, I you can read and there was a big debate with aurelio Pecce, who was the founder of the club of rome and somebody asked him do you do you support zero growth because of what you wrote and said, not at all, but no way, I don't support zero growth. Because if you have zero, if you freeze the system, then inequality remains the same. It means if the poor remain poor, the rich remain rich. This is a big problem that I didn't say anything here, but you can, you can make models of that too, the problem of inequality. And that's one of the main points of the Earth for All, which is another subject, Earth for all, discuss equity, right? to, to establish a certain degree of, of equity, not necessarily equality. Equality is uh, it's very difficult. How, how do you do that? But, but to make sure mm-hmm. that nobody is left out of the prosperity that society can create. Very simple. And this is, a, this is a point which I'm afraid that uh, the modern um, people who are, are promoting degrowth, they don't normally consider that who is going to degrow. I'm very much inspired by Roberto Pecce at, at this time, not Roberto, but his son, the son of Aurelio. Aurelio was the founder. Um, who is going to degrow? <laughs> That's a question. It's not often asked, and, but it is asked. If you ask to some people from Africa and say, you want me to degrow? No, you degrow. grow and, and so this is, uh, the, but in practice, what, what happens is that the poor degrow. Before the rich, and that's a little bit of a problem, as you may imagine.
1: Okay, thank you, Hugo. And then there is a question from Noel Martinez. The question is about the new features in the model about technology can help better predict.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, that's that's a, one of the many fascinating points of this, because you move away from the mechanical mechanics of the model. The model telling you if you are stupid, that's what happens. And since it happens so fast, it means that humans are not so smart as they think they are. But but if you are smart, really, then you change, and that's that's what the models are telling you. It's a, it's a new, fantastic, fascinating. Think that you can explore because Donella Meadows explored it. I show you a slide about the para- change of paradigm. First, most important thing: change paradigm first, like, and you can change things, or just go touch the critical points of the system, and you can change a lot of things. But we are still learning. I think the future here is the mixing of artificial intelligence we have to mix artificial intelligence with this kind of models, because once you start using artificial intelligence, you can explore um, possibilities that the mechanic, mechanistic, if you prefer, model cannot analyze, and which is the weak point, because uh, correctly said we, we are not bound by the models. The models tell, you, tell us mostly what we cannot do, but there is a lot that we can do, and it is not in the model.
1: Uh, Okay, thank you very much, Sundar. Is there any other question from the ground? Yes, please.
2: Hi, I'm Lucy Goodman from the
1: Department of Geography. And my question is
2: kind of, I guess, related to my interest, which is around renewable energy and debates and developments. You've talked a lot so far in response to a lot of the the chat and also the questions from the floor about the shape of the Seneca curve. My question to you is to reflect a bit more about the the x-axis of the timeline how how long can that period be for it still to be a seneca curve for it to Mm -hmm. actually be um following this the shape and still be describing the phenomenon that you've been discussing related to one of the questions from the chat which was about how many decades there were to the renewable energy transition and kind of if you can reflect on this and also how long have we got left to make a change that's the kind of thrust of my question
0: that's a very good question. Very good. I wish I could answer the few because we would like to predict the future, but we cannot. There is something that uh, very basic, I mean uh, that, that uh, I, I try to understand how these models could really predict the future. No, they cannot. And, um, and the time scale, they can tell you some big change may happen, as you said, the Seneca Cliff. But when, how? how fast, uh, up to uh, how long, how far down we are going to go. It's very difficult. See, I could tell you about the ultimate collapse, which is the collapse of the Earth's ecosystem, which could happen. With it's, uh, the climate science, uh, we arrived to a similar a similar idea when they discuss about tipping points. I guess you know what is a tipping point, right? Maybe you know tipping points, for instance, methane hydrates. Methane hydrates as is, is, is a positive feedback effect that you um, evaporate some methane hydrates. The hydrates heat the atmosphere, you evaporate more, and then you have what is called the Venus effect that the Earth system goes down to the curve to a condition in which you have about 600 degrees on um, temperature, 600 Celsius, maybe, and uh, never mind, 600, <laughs> too much for, for us human. This is the total collapse of the Earth's ecosystem due to a tipping point, which is essentially the same thing as the Seneca, because you have something that start, starts Pulling down the system and does that growing, does that in a feedback-driven uh, effect. Now you ask the climate scientists, when is that going to happen? Is it going to happen? Probably yes, if we don't stop doing a certain thing. But when? And that's you can ask any climate scientist. Not possible to know. We don't know because it's too fast. The parameters, the system reacts non-linearly to small changes of parameters so you cannot predict it you could go to to help essentially <laughs> venus in uh, maybe in a hundred years or less maybe in a few decades we know nobody maybe thousands of years tens of thousands of years and uh, the only thing you have be prepared <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the main points of the the, the urgency of the effort of the emphasis on climate change which is correct it's a it's a correct point it the the disaster could be gigantic beyond anything we can imagine but we cannot frame it in a time scale and uh, you know you can you can ask professor Bard. they say i don't know because uh," but if you ask to climatologists uh, thousands of climatologists exploring this field in detail for decades, but they cannot predict you, ask, ask them. And so it is a limitation of our, our our brain, or perhaps it's a limitation which is inside the way, the fabric of the universe, we could, that to us it is not given to predict the future.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Barbi. Uh, I think now we really need to close It's 6 p.m. and uh, just want to thank everybody for joining, everybody from the chat. I think the discussion was very much interesting. Uh, thank you, Professor Barry. Thank you also Professor David Lane that's <laughs> handled the chat much better than I could on my own. And uh, maybe I can cite these last comments when he says the very deep words, models help us argue. So they're not meant to be, you know, the prediction. Uh, rather than merely disagreeing, we can have more sensible discussions about the parameters and assumptions that we are using. So, in practice, supports a the discussion then we can talk and make the world we want. That's, I think, one of the main objectives of building a model. So if you build a model, it creates so much discussion. That was a successful one. <laughs> Next week, we have you had, uh, Manfela Ranfela. She's co present of Double Please come along, it will be a very exciting. And I mean, that will be a very big discussion, a bit, I think, separate from the modeling, a bit more into the humanity, what we can do in practice. So if you are interested I think that, will be a very interesting talk as well. So again, thank you very much, Professor Udibardi, uh, for your time. And uh, again, thank you very much. Bye. Bye, all. See you next Monday. Bye.
0: Okay. Bye, bye, everybody. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit clubofrome.org.